Hello, my name is Rob Carnell, and in my podcast series, I'm going to talk about a number of issues in modern macroeconomics that get right up my nose. Now, while some of the subjects might seem a bit esoteric, they all deal with things that affect our everyday financial lives, and I'm going to use a lot of intuitive examples to explain them. So don't be put off. It'll be a lot of fun. One of the notes I wrote this year, early on in the lockdown, was about stagflation and why I didn't think it was going to be a problem. I think so far the data has supported my argument, but I still see these sorts of remarks from time to time, and so I think it's worth going back over this ground to see why people thought it might be an issue and to hold them to account for those forecasts. So let me start by taking you on a journey in time to when I was a small boy my dad sported alarming facial hair, fashions were appalling, and the music, well, that was perhaps its only redeeming feature, giving us both disco and then punk rock. But as far as the economy went, the main feature that most people associate with the era of wing collars and stack heels was stagflation. Recently, a number of fairly prominent economists have written articles suggesting that one of the most likely outcomes of the COVID-19 pandemic is a return to stagflation. In turn, I've been writing that this is nonsense, and of all the things I've written in the last few years, I've never received as much feedback as I have on this subject. So no apologies for plunging back in and giving it another look now. Right, okay, stagflation. What exactly is it? Well, a simple answer is that it's a combination of stagnation namely slower growth and high unemployment, and inflation. But I think we need to go a little further than that, because many of the articles that suggest a return to stagflation also suggest that this is something that may help households, corporations, indeed governments, to deflate away their debt piles. And as COVID-19 keeps economies repressed, these debt piles are growing into debt mountains. Well, this suggests a couple of things. Firstly, In order to deliver such a useful debt deflating function, this needs to be a sustained impact. It's no good having inflation spike up for just one year. That isn't going to do a lot to the debt burden. It needs years and years to have this sort of effect. Secondly, stagflation seems to be being portrayed as some kind of horrific outcome. Oh no, stagflation's coming. We'll all be wearing wing collar shirts and humming along to Boney M by Christmas. Actually, If we end up with any sort of outcome that delivered a bit more inflation, it would be a blessing. There may not be all that much we can do about the stag bit of stagflation, but I'd argue that it's a better outcome in some ways than all-out stagnation, where growth and unemployment remains awful, but the debt burden also weighs heavily. Stagflation actually offers hope of a time when debt's no longer a massive drag on the economy, and in turn a return to better times. All of which is a bit depressing as I don't think stagflation is coming. Why not? Let's run through the arguments for stagflation and see where it all falls down. And by the way, thanks to those of you who respond to our research notes with comments or questions, this was another factor for returning to this issue, so please keep them coming. Okay, I'm ING, at least I work for them, not the BBC, and other views on this are available. So for balance, if you want an alternative view to mine, I'd recommend looking up an article by Brian Redding of OMFIF called Welcome to a World of Stagflation, but you can find plenty of others online. They all follow roughly the following arguments. Firstly, 
The impact of COVID-19 is currently to depress growth, but there will come a time when it's no longer weighing on growth so much and the economy recovers. Demand will begin to increase, though from a very low base. That recovery in demand, however, will face the inevitable destruction of supply that's taken place during this pandemic, despite all the stimulus measures from both fiscal and monetary policy. Finally, add rising demand with curtailed supply and you end up with a recipe for rising inflation, they say, but coupled with high unemployment. Now, some of the articles also weave in a confusing overlay of productivity, which delivers a sense of authority, but one which I think is entirely spurious. And this next bit is a bit of a diversion, but it's a particular bugbear of mine. So let me tell you something about productivity. Basically, as soon as you start supporting your arguments for various outcomes by citing productivity, you're already heading down a pathway of utter nonsense. Here's why. And I'm going to name drop a former colleague who is now deputy governor of the Bank of England and who I briefly shared an office with back in the mid 1990s, Ben Broadbent. Sorry, Ben. Now, Ben was and still is a very clever chap, and I understood about one comment in 10 that he made during the few brief months that our careers overlapped. But this one remark he made really hit home. Productivity, he said, is a residual. This seemingly innocuous remark is actually genius, as probably were all the other things he said, which I didn't understand. How so? Well, however you define productivity, whether output per hour worked or output per worker, both are legitimate. It's the two terms, output and employment, and output and hours worked that are doing all the work here. Productivity changes are almost entirely cyclical and offer no additional information or insight into the economy. Whether this relates to growth, inflation, or anything else for that matter that you do not already know. Innate shifts in productivity are very rare and usually minuscule in their impact on the economy. Some governments spend huge amounts of energy and money trying to boost productivity with all sorts of supply side policies. And the result of this is to deliver economic performance that is often barely distinguishable between those economies that do not. The UK and France in the 1990s would be a good example. But as I said, all of this is a diversion because all that you're really saying, if you're arguing that rising productivity will follow the economic recovery, is that output will pick up faster than employment. Well, I can totally buy that. I just think it makes it even harder to argue in favor of a stagflation argument in that case. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let's get back to the recovery and what we might expect in terms of prices as the recovery continues. Well, we will still probably have substantial social distancing restrictions, and that will prevent many service sector industries, restaurants, bars, retail, from achieving the same footfall and turnover as in the past. Their fixed costs won't probably have fallen. So for those firms that survive the pandemic, and not all will, there will be a strong incentive for them to push up their margins and raise prices. Hang on, I can almost hear you crying. Isn't this exactly what you said wasn't going to happen? No, hold on a minute and listen carefully, because if you remember, one of the key aspects of stagflation I mentioned is that it's not a flash in the pan. It is enduring. And that is what ultimately is going to deliver the salvation to the growing debt issue. What I described before with firms pushing up prices to widen margins is a one off price level adjustment. Just like what you get if the government raises sales taxes or VAT, VAT, depending on where you live. 
many of the retail goods and services we've enjoyed at lower prices will suddenly become less affordable and the inflation rate will spike higher for about a year. And this is where authors like Brian Redding suggest stagflation takes off with statements like, in the competitive struggle for income, employees will exert economic power over cash-strapped employers. Brian does hit on a critical nub for the stagflation argument, but in my opinion, his equation doesn't add up. For one thing, all the earlier stuff about productivity growth, whilst not necessary in my view, does point fairly conclusively in one direction. Unemployment in the coming years is likely to be far higher than it was in the years immediately pre-COVID, when, for many economies, it was at decade or even record lows. That seems fairly uncontroversial to me, but that fact alone undermines the notion that labour is going to have any sort of bargaining power with employers over wages. And without this, the one-off margins reset and resulting price level shocks are simply an adjustment that reduces the purchasing power of household incomes. While price levels rise and the rate of inflation follows for a time, without a mechanism to drive a wage response and then a further margin response from employers within a year, inflation will be trending lower again, even if central banks maintain their ultra-accommodative stances. This is crucial to the stagflation argument, and to reiterate, I have no problem with the notion that there is a price adjustment during the recovery. To me, this looks like a simple transfer of real incomes from labour to capital, and the fact that there is still likely to be high levels of unemployment makes that even more likely, as this substantially undermines Labour's economic muscle in the struggle for, as Redding puts it, economic power. But actually, that power struggle has been unequal for decades. Let's think about the economies of today against those of the 1970s. The initial spark for the inflation surges in the 1970s and 1980s came from rising oil prices, driven by OPEC. OPEC these days looks like a busted flush, and the percentage of oil in production globally is a fraction of what it once was. This isn't coming back. Much more importantly, widespread unionisation and collective bargaining were the driving forces behind national wage agreements back then, with unions wielding strike power to achieve their ends. Unionisation today is a fraction of what it once was, and such collective bargaining arguments are rare. And that's partly because such agreements were usually driven from the manufacturing sectors of the economy. Today, not only do we not have much unionisation, we also have much smaller manufacturing economies and much larger service sectors. And one of the results of this is that firm-specific skills that workers in manufacturing used to have, and which gave them bargaining power, they couldn't be easily replaced by their employers, at least not without costly retraining, has given way to highly transferable service sector skills, like, for example, being familiar with Microsoft Office. Just about anybody has that these days. And jobs, whether in manufacturing or services, are increasingly replaceable by technology. Roboticization in manufacturing, artificial intelligence and algorithms in services. Globalization is sometimes thrown into this argument as a further source for inflation. But the reality, as far as I'm concerned, is that while it may not be as much of a disinflationary force as it has been in the recent decades, it is much more likely that rather than outright reversal, globalization will simply change in terms of its importance. On the whole, I still anticipate the sign of the coefficient of globalization on global price levels to be negative, 
even if the size of that coefficient declines in the coming years and decades. All of the factors above are important, because when we think of one of the other features of stagflation that was a factor back in the 1970s, it was also the accommodative stance of central banks that also played a part. Right now, with quantitative easing becoming the norm and struggling to justify the description of unorthodox monetary policy anymore, interest rates knocking on zero or in some cases straying into negative territory, could central bank policy be any more accommodative? The answer is probably, but not much. But I think there's a strong case to be made for saying that this, is, this simply doesn't matter. And here's why. In the years before COVID-19, central banks from the US Federal Reserve, Bank of England, European Central Bank and Bank of Japan all had one thing in common. Following the global financial crisis, and in some cases long preceding it, despite hugely accommodative policy, none of these economies achieved their inflation targets on a consistent basis, all undershot most of the time and certainly on average. And this was often coupled with rates of unemployment that on historical comparisons were extremely low and would in the past have delivered much higher inflation. Now, all of this will be the subject of another episode, which will take a critical look at inflation targets and bring in all sorts of ideas like the collapse of the Phillips curve. But the basic point is this. We can't generate inflation today, even when everything in the economy is in perfect alignment and central banks are printing cash fit to bust. Roger Bootle was quite prescient about the death of inflation, and absent artificial measures such as a return of indexation of wages or a gradual ratcheting up of sales taxes, which can't be entirely ruled out, then we simply aren't ever going to see inflation doing anything more than spiking temporarily higher in the future, whatever the shocks. The absence of labour power, irrespective of the state of unemployment, means no cost-push spiral where rising wages drives higher prices and then more wage increases and so on. And without this, there will be no stagflation. Uncomfortable price rises on everything from a restaurant meal to a haircut? Yes, for a time. But these price increases won't occur year after year after year. And after the first iteration may in any case be dominated by the essentially disinflationary impact of falling household incomes and may begin to reverse. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that in some ways, this is a shame, as high and rapidly rising debt ratios are likely to be weighing on our economies for years to come. And how we get out of that is definitely a contender for a future podcast, along with a probable death of central bank inflation targets. That's it for this time. I hope I've set your mind at rest in terms of stagflation, or if you've been paying attention, made you disappointed that we aren't going to get any. Either way, Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been prepared by ING solely for information purposes, irrespective of a particular user's means financial situation, or investment objective. The information does not constitute investment recommendation, and nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice, or an offer of solicitation to purchase or sell any financial instrument. Read more at think.ing.com slash content disclaimer.